On June 9, 1982, the National Assembly declared Kenya a one-party nation, firmly united under President Daniel Arap Moy. Initially, Jomo Kenyatta had emerged as Kenya's counterpart to George Washington, an educated freedom fighter who, in 1963, forcibly seized control from the British to establish a constitutional republic. However, his policies inadvertently paved the way for his successor to complete the transformation from Kenya's democracy to a dictatorship. You're listening to Empires, Anarchy, and Other Notable Moments, a podcast designed for deep dives that assist in the teaching of history. This is the final episode in a series regarding the father of modern-day Kenya, Jomo Kenyatta. Episode number five, The Legacy of Jomo Kenyatta. George Washington stands among few peers within the hallways of history. As a triumphant military leader, he first faced the French and Indians before confronting the considerably stronger British army during the Revolutionary War. Washington seamlessly transitioned from a general to a politician, guiding America along the challenging road to a more perfect union. Despite the trials, Washington, enveloped in a personality cult as the victorious general, faced fervent appeals to assume the crown of leadership and establish his own monarchy. For a moment, it seemed as though America, having rebelled against King George, might replace him with its own King George. However, Washington rejected these suggestions and worked to forge a new path forward. Although he declined the mantle of kingship, not everyone shared Washington's sentiments. He sailed through both of his presidential elections unopposed, and his supporters eagerly anticipated a potential third term. To them, King Washington was a concept they embraced, even if it contradicted their own declarations. One of the most remarkable documents in world history, George Washington's farewell address, was initially titled, The Address of General Washington to the People of America on His Declining the Presidency of the United States. Future President James Madison authored the first draft when Washington considered resigning during his first term. And in 1796, Alexander Hamilton added the final touches. The farewell address articulated Washington's concerns for the fledgling nation forecasting our eventual descent into partisan bickering, foreign entanglements, and bloated budgets. Its most important moment, however, came with Washington's public declaration that he would not seek a third presidential term. It was time for the reins of power to pass to the next leader. Until Franklin Delano Roosevelt, Every subsequent leader adhered to the principle set forth by Washington. Eight years were sufficient for one person to wield power. Anything beyond that risked undermining the democratic principles 
for which many had fought and died. While Washington undeniably had his flaws, the historical precedent for a leader willingly and responsibly relinquishing power takes us back to ancient times. Lucius Cincinnatus called to service to quell a plebeian uprising in ancient Rome exemplifies this rare trait. Upon receiving the call, messengers found him working his land with a plow. Granted unlimited power in Rome, Cincinnatus used it to swiftly crush the revolt. Astonishingly, he disbanded his army and returned to his farm just 15 days later. To emphasize that his rejection of power was intentional, Cincinnatus was called into action again 19 years later. Once more, he gathered the full power of the Roman Empire, resolved the crisis, and returned the authority 21 days later to retire in peace. Jomo Kenyatta, the George Washington of Kenya, shared commonalities with both men. Tasked with leading the transition of the fledgling nation, Kenyatta, perceived as a victorious general, even if it had been from behind bars during the emergency, transformed himself into a politician out of the needs of his nation. Kenya mirrored the idolization of its founding father by incorporating his name throughout the country. Similar to Cincinnatus, Kenyatta was willing to amass the state's power to address any crisis the young nation faced. However, in contrast to Washington and Cincinnatus, Jomo Kenyatta never showed a willingness to relinquish even an ounce of the power that he had accumulated. First, let's dispel certain notions. The term dictator doesn't inherently carry negative connotations. While many historical dictators are remembered for their cruelty, the term itself signifies an individual ruling with absolute authority, a leader holding complete autocratic control over their people. Cruelty isn't a prerequisite for the definition of dictatorship, as democracies too can impose a tyranny of the majority. Despite Kenyatta being labeled a dictator by some, there are those who hesitate to categorize him as such, in part due to his enduring popularity among the people, evident even today as his son holds elected leadership in Kenya. Anais Angelo attempts to navigate this complex terrain, addressing Kenyatta's status as the father of Kenya and an African big man dictator. In this podcast, I lean significantly towards the dictatorship characterization in the ongoing debate. Angelo's work, Power and Presidency, the Jomo Kenyatta Years, first tackles the label of father of the nation. In 1960, as the winds of change signaled Kenya's path to independence, Jomo Kenyatta, previously confined in the harsh Lakatang prison, found himself in isolated house arrest in Lodwar. The British-rigged sentence portrayed Kenyatta as the mastermind of Mau Mau, a characterization influenced by their racist ideology, preventing a nuanced understanding of Mau Mau as a decentralized movement 
or a response to legitimate political grievances against the colonial government. The Kenyan African National Union Party, or KANU, led by Tom Boya and Ojinga Odinga, formed for the upcoming elections. Kenyatta, selected as the party's president in absentia, having previously served as the head of the KAU before his arrest, centered the party's platform around the strategic goal of freeing Kenyatta. The KANU secured the majority of seats in the 1961 election, but refused to participate in the government until their leader was released. Britain, in the process of granting Kenya independence and democracy, found itself in a predicament, as the winners declined their seats. In a private discussion, Jomo Kenyatta pledged to safeguard British settler interests and rights, leading to his release. If he was meant to be the father of the Kenyan nation, he missed its birth. However, with his freedom, the KANU could finally take their seats at the table, a position they would not relinquish for another 39 years. In 1963, Governor MacDonald assumed control of Kenya, perceived as more amenable to Africans than his predecessor. He expedited the process of Kenyan independence aiming to complete it by the end of the calendar year. MacDonald designated Jomo as the leader-in-waiting, forming a friendship with the former prisoner. Jomo Kenyatta was identified as the wisest, strongest, and most popular potential prime minister for the emerging nation. The constitution writing process initiated in 1960 involved both the KANU and their rival political party, the KADU. By 1963, Jomo Kenyatta publicly praised the document while privately expressing plans to amend significant sections. Debates over executive power took a back seat to criticize British concerns, including land redistribution and the government's centralization or decentralization. The final document discreetly included language granting the executive to make any appointment, or make any order, or do any other thing. Jomo Kenyatta, a cunning politician, recognized the need to balance the interests of major power players in Kenya. Unbeknownst to many, he operated as a wolf in sheep's clothing, ready to pounce at the first opportunity. At the celebration of Kenya's independence, Kenyatta discarded his prepared speech and delivered a stirring, rehearsed address in his native tongue. Amidst constant applause, the new prime minister vowed to eliminate three national ills, poverty, ignorance, and disease. His frequently used slogan, Harambi, meant, let us work together is served as a facade for a man who would rule as much through authoritarianism as through collaboration. While many of Jomo Kenyatta's policies didn't overtly embrace authoritarianism, the persistent association with dictatorship stems from his strategic maneuvers to consolidate power. Still, he rarely crossed the line into pure dictatorship 
For instance, despite disavowing traditional medicine practices, Kenyatta refrained from outright suppression. He initiated educational institutions without mandating state indoctrination in the curriculum, and he addressed the growing birth rate through economic incentives rather than forced sterilization. However, despite his success in winning three elections, the label of dictatorship persists. Starting in 1963, when he became Prime Minister of Kenya, Kenyatta began rewriting the constitution in his favor. The catalyst for the consolidation of state power was a small border war with Somalia, known as the Shifta War. Ethnic Somalis in northern Kenya sought secession, and Kenyatta exploited the conflict for propaganda, utilizing methods reminiscent of the Mau Mau era, such as creating home villages akin to concentration camps. Constitutional changes elevated Kenyatta's role from prime minister to president. His authoritarian tendencies became apparent in 1965 when a portion of the military was suspected of contemplating a coup in favor of Kenya's vice president. Kenyatta, relying on British military support, successfully quelled the perceived threat, showcasing his retained goodwill from former jailers. The coup fears were linked to growing support for Vice President Ojinga Odinga, a KANU co-founder who had leftist political leanings. Although the coup never materialized, the Vice President's influence waned, and he eventually formed his own socialist opposition party named Kenya's People's Union, or KPU. That organization was designed to run against Kenyatta. While serving as vice president, Odinga's voice was marginalized, and his role was reduced to a symbolic position split into eight roles staffed by Kenyatta loyalists. In 1968, the KPU was banned, and Odinga was detained by the government. Despite his return to the KANU in 1971, it became evident that Kenyatta would not tolerate challenges to his position. Harambe at this point seemed more like a slogan than a collaborative ethos. Pio Pinto, a committed advocate for communism and a member of the KANU party, leaned towards the Odinga faction. He met a tragic end in 1965. Pinto's influence on Malcolm X during the latter's visit in Kenya in 1959 is notable, inspiring Malcolm X's belief in pan-Africanism. Pinto was assassinated allegedly because he had uncovered Jomo Kenyatta's embezzlement of foreign aid, around five million from Britain, designated for those affected by colonialist policies during Mau Mau. Intent on testifying publicly, Pinto's assassination was orchestrated to prevent the damaging information from reaching the ears of Parliament. While Kenyatta publicly condemned the killing, Evidence points to the involvement of his personal bodyguard. Pio Pinto became the first Kenyan politician to be assassinated, 
an unfortunate precursor to further political violence. Remarkably, Malcolm X, Pinto's friend, was also assassinated just three days later. In 1966, another constitutional amendment granted the sitting president the authority to detain individuals without trial if the president perceived a threat to the state's security. This power, which Kenyatta humorously acknowledged during a meeting with Governor Barring, reflected a concerning expansion of executive authority. In 1969, Tom Boya, a key KANU member with ties to the United States, was assassinated. Unlike Pinto and Odinga, Mboyo did not share socialist tendencies, and his connections to the U.S. contributed to his tragic fate. Boya's initiative in 1959, known as the Airlift, brought 81 Kenyan students to study in American universities. The initiative was funded by a foundation established by Harry Belafonte, Jackie Robinson, and Sidney Poitier. Tom Boya's efforts gained recognition from President John F. Kennedy and Time Magazine, which featured the Kenyan on its cover. After visiting a pharmacy, however, Mboya was gunned down. Once again, Kenyatta condemned the attack publicly, but suspicions arose that he feared U.S. intervention via the CIA to replace him with the more favored Mboya. Barack Obama Sr., a witness to the assassination and a beneficiary of Boya's scholarship program, reported the crime to authorities. Later, Obama believed he was targeted for assassination for reporting the crime. Obama's connection to Boya's scholarship program allowed him to enroll at the University of Hawaii, where he met Stanley Ann Dunham, and eventually became the father of Barack Obama Jr. Upon revealing his existing family in Kenya to his American wife, Obama Sr. pursued a Ph.D. at Harvard University, returning to Kenya to marry for the third time. The disappearances of Pio Pinta, Ojingo Odinga, and Tom Boya suggested that Jomo Kenyatta adhered to Joseph Stalin's philosophy of no man, no problem. In 1969, Kenyatta reinstated a loyalty test by reviving the controversial Kikuyu oathing ceremonies that had been used during the Mau Mau era. This time, the oath explicitly pledged loyalty to Jomo Kenyatta, challenging the powerful Catholic Church in Kenya, which saw it as an attempt to deify him. Time Magazine's 1969 article, Ominous Oaths, highlighted the dangerous implications of these ceremonies, where thousands of Kikuyu swore allegiance against fellow Kenyans in Kenyatta's backyard. Despite Jomo's positive relationship with the Kenyan press, Negative stories about the oathing ceremonies led to mass deportations of journalists as the press turned against the president. Jomo's response was to wield his constitutional powers to remove this perceived threat to the state. 
1975, the final prominent political assassination occurred with the kidnapping, torture, and murder of Josiah Wonga Kirki, whose growing popularity surpassed Kenyatta's. The clumsy nature of the assassination pointed to Kenyatta's involvement, with intelligence services directly implicating his personal bodyguard in the opponent's disappearance. By this point, it became evident that Kenyatta was losing his political acumen, likely attributed to his declining age. Initially seen as a transitional figure in 1963, Kenyatta's age, believed to be in the late 60s or early 70s, now became a limiting factor. The man once known as the Burning Spear was now affectionately referred to as Z, or Old Man. 1966, three years into his presidency, he suffered a mild stroke, and another followed in 1969. From this point forward, he was always surrounded by a team of nurses due to multiple heart conditions, though he refused a pacemaker. Kenyatta also suffered from poor vision, concealing it by having speeches written in large fonts to avoid wearing eyeglasses. Despite rumors of his increasing feebleness and senility, he was re-elected for his third and final term in 1974. During this time, his inner circle continued to govern in his name, often implementing policies that enriched Kenyatta's trusted associates. Before his health declined, Jomo Kenyatta reveled in the trappings of power. During a countryside tour, he set his sights on a farm and demanded its purchase, irrespective of the seller's wishes, contradicting the slogan of his land policy, willing buyer, willing seller. When the minister failed to enforce the sale, Kenyatta, asserting his presidential authority, learned that his wife had already acquired the land. The Kenyatta family's extensive land acquisitions led to accusations of colonizing the Great Rift Valley. A 1975 New York Times article portrayed a damning legacy for the Kenyatta family, involving political assassinations, ongoing large-scale land acquisitions, attempts by Kenyatta's fourth wife to seize a diamond mine from Americans, and the royal family's engagement in illegal trades such as charcoal and ivory. The government collaborated in arresting competitors involved in each of these illicit and ecologically damaging activities, but it turns out that those arrests were only done so the Kenyattas could monopolize the industry. In 1977, Kenyatta suffered strokes and or heart attacks passing away on August 22, 1978. Officially, his death is attributed to a heart attack. Funeral preparations had started a decade earlier, mirroring the ceremony of British Prime Minister Winston Churchill. They even brought in the gun carriage from Britain that Churchill rode in. The elaborate ceremony, reminiscent of British pomp and circumstance, aimed to perpetuate Kenyatta's personality cult as the father of the country and obscure his record as a dictator. 
As early as November 1963, Kenyatta had elevated himself above the law, legislating deportation for those disrespecting the prime minister, a severe punishment rooted in Africa's history of social death. Monuments, streets, an international airport, and a university were all named after him, reinforcing his dominant presence. His statue outside the National Assembly symbolized his overarching influence, making it challenging for Parliament to serve as a check on the President. A 2020 analysis done by The Conversation used Nairobi to highlight the streets renaming post-independence while they shed colonial references. Notably, Mama Jinja Street was one of the few streets named after a woman, honoring Jomo's wife. Both George Washington and Jomo Kenyatta share the distinction of appearing on their respective countries' currency with Kenyatta gracing the bills during his presidency, unlike George Washington, who only appeared on the U.S. dollar bill 70 years after his death in 1869. If you're looking for absolutely amazing trivia questions, ask people who Washington replaced. Surprisingly, it was the Treasury Secretary of Abraham Lincoln. When assessing African leaders, it's crucial to avoid imposing Western standards and consider the historical context shaped by the legacy of African big men, the slave trade, and imperialism, which left few positive role models. However, in the final analysis, Jomo Kenyatta's actions exhibited a degree of impunity characteristic of a dictator. He removed political opponents, clashed with the press when unfavorable, and strategically placed his name to create the illusion of sole responsibility for Kenyan success. His family enriched themselves at the expense of others, leveraging government powers to eliminate competition. While recognizing Kenyatta for his achievements, it's important not to romanticize him as a George Washington-like figure. Despite similarities in opposing the British, serving during Kenya's birth, and having numerous things named after him, Kenyatta lacked Washington's ability to step down and bid farewell. The adage, you either die a hero or live long enough to become the villain, resonates with Kenyatta's legacy, as he passed away as an aged leader. It's a reminder that despite accomplishments, the assessment of leaders should consider their actions and legacy comprehensively. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you want to interact with the show, you can email us at resourcesbylowry at gmail.com. If you'd like to financially support the show, please look in the description for more information. As always, thank you for listening, rating the show, and spreading the word.